Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we're going to look at training telekinesis, which is another word for psychokinesis or mind over matter. My guest, Sean McNamara, teaches individuals and groups how to cultivate telekinetic abilities. He is the author of Defy Your Limits, the telekinesis training method learn psi ability, and then use it to empower the rest of your life. Also, Meditation X Telekinesis, the mindfulness practice of moving matter with subtle energy and intention. And finally, his most recent book, Renegade Mystic, the pursuit of spiritual freedom through consciousness exploration. This is an internet interview, and now let me switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Sean. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Jeffrey. I'm really happy to be here. You've been uh, training psychokinesis or telekinesis, uh, I think is your preferred word. Um, what, for about five years now? Is that right? That's right. I, I taught myself how to do it a few years ago, and when I talk to most people about it, I call it telekinesis, mostly because that's what the kids call it. <laughs> I find out that people are learning this around the world, and the young practitioners like the term telekinesis, but I know it's an older term, and most researchers prefer psychokinesis. Uh, do you find any difference between telekinesis or psychokinesis? Well, I think psychokinesis is an overarching term, an umbrella term for mind over matter, and why I like telekinesis regarding what I've taught people to do is because of that tele. It implies distance of not touching the object with your hands versus doing something like spoon bending. For example, if you're going to bend metal with your mind, most people do it touching it with their hands. And then it's there's always a question, was it muscular effort or was it psychic ability? But with telekinesis, that notion of distance, it removes that doubt and really shows that something is happening on a non-physical level. So I see that fork you held up. Uh, is is that one that you've bent? It is. I thought I'd have it handy just as an example of psychokinesis. Uh, it's something that I do with my friends here in Denver. We get together and do different kinds of psychic experiments. And the spoon bending is one of the more fun ones because there's a lot of energy and noise involved with that. And usually a lot of people succeed right away. I know uh, years ago, Jack Houck, the late Jack Houck, uh, used to hold PK parties, and uh, dozens of people would report forks and spoons bent in the most amazing ways. And actually, it's his his inspiration that, uh, that I remember when I teach these classes. I've watched his video from his website, and his technique is great. It's easy to learn. I know there are other techniques out there, but his is the one that... I've had the most success with personally and that a lot of people enjoy using. And so in a way, nothing new is happening with today's spoon bending parties. You know, he's been, he was doing it in the seventies, I believe. And he had, he did thousands, he taught thousands of people how to do this. And his, uh, his work still carries on, which is really great. 
You, uh, to my knowledge, uh, were a practitioner of meditation and Tibetan Buddhism before you began this uh, work in telekinesis. Yeah, something happened in between that time when I when I identified myself as a Tibetan Buddhist. I was in a couple of different groups, and because of some negative circumstances that happened, I decided to separate myself from them and actually to disidentify myself with any religion whatsoever because I realized that the my big spiritual question still lingered in my mind, and that was a fear of death. And so I was raised Catholic, and there's nothing wrong with Catholicism, but there's that faith aspect to it where you're sort of told what to believe, that there's heaven and hell and purgatory for Catholic. And I wasn't satisfied. I wanted to find my own answer, so I went to Buddhism. But I found out that even there, there because it's a long-standing tradition and there's power structures involved, there's a lot of dogma there. And even though it led me on a certain path, it wasn't really my personal path. I wasn't answering my questions. So at a certain point, I, I decided to teach myself how to have an out-of-body experience because that's what would give me evidence to the idea that there's a non-physical aspect to ourselves. And if I could prove that to myself or show it to myself, I thought that it would remove my fear of death. And I spent a few months really training hard to have an out-of-body experience, reading everything I could, particularly the books by William Buhlman, um, but others as well, and practicing various techniques, sometimes practicing two or three times a day, most of that happening at night, and eventually I had an out-of-body experience, and it really happened that after the first time, my fear of death was gone. Now, it's not that I don't want to die. Um, I don't want to die now, but, but the fear of complete annihilation, that's gone because I see there's something more. We're not just physical beings. But after that, uh, I wanted to be able to teach that to people. Not necessarily, I couldn't show them an out-of-body experience per se. I couldn't lay down on the floor and they wouldn't be able to see me leaving my body. It doesn't really work that way. So I wanted to figure something else out on the same theme that we're more than just skin and bones, we're more than just blood and brains. And so I thought, well, maybe maybe psychokinesis or telekinesis is the way that I could do this. And then people could experience it very quickly and see the evidence for themselves. But it wasn't just an idea that I came up with on a whim. I was actually watching some videos about uh, near-death experiences. And I came across a video uh, given by Shirley Black, who's had several near-death experiences. And during her talk, she mentioned the ability to move objects with her mind. A lot of her experience is spontaneous. She labeled it recurrent spontaneous PK, um, RSPK. But then during the video that I watched, I saw her example. She pulled out a little piece of tinfoil, what they call a psi wheel, PSI wheel, on a needle inside of a container, and by putting her hand near it, she could make it spin. And I'd seen some other people do it, and I thought, mm, I don't know if it's real or not, but when she did it, I thought, there it is. That's that thing that I could learn, and if I'm successful, then I can teach it to other people, and just include it as my a type of meditation that I teach to other people, because really it is meditative, at least the way I learned how to do it, and the way I do it is very meditative. So... Um, then I, I started teaching it to people, and it's it's been all right. In other words, you were able to do it yourself rather quickly, I presume. Well, I, I don't know if I'd say quickly. It took me about as long as it took me to have an out-of-body experience 
actually a little sooner, but it was quite a painful process because I remember going to the store and getting a glass container and the needle and those candles to stick it in and the tin foil to balance on it. And my goal was to learn how to do it without touching the glass at all. I was being really hard on myself because I didn't want to fool myself. That's always the danger with psychic experiences that we could be actually fooling ourselves. And there's some other far more natural explanation or normal explanation. And I don't want to do that to myself. So I sat there every day when I come home from work in front of this glass container, usually for half an hour, 45 minutes, or over an hour, staring at this little piece of tin foil, trying to figure out what to do to make that little thing turn. And so I experimented day after day, and it took about two and a half months of trying every day before it started to move. So it's kind of painful for me. And something I like to share with people is, the, the funny thing is, after I succeeded a few times, I I asked my wife if she wanted to give it a try. And she sat down and I, I said, well, would you like me to tell you my technique? You know, I was acting all cocky. <laughs> and she said, no, let me just do it. And she sat in front of the, the glass container and she just did this motion with her hand very gracefully in front of it. And then the thing started to turn right away. <laughs> it's just so aggravating because she had instant success with it. But I think I know why she did. It's because she told me that for years in her dream state and sometimes in her lucid dreams, she would practice moving objects in the dream environment. So there's something about her subconscious mind that was already open to the possibility that this could be done in the waking state. Whereas in my case, I was just for some reason so hard on myself and a lot of self-doubt about could, could I really do this or am I making it up? And the interesting thing that happened before the first time I succeeded was I was tired from practicing and so I went to bed and I laid my head down on the pillow and as I closed my eyes, this image, it was sort of a black and white or a foggy image of the tinfoil turning on the needle arose in my mind's eye just behind my forehead. I didn't it was completely spontaneous, and it just happened on its own. I was just trying to fall asleep, and here's this image. And then eventually faded out a few minutes later, and I fell asleep. And the next day or the day after that is when I had my first success. And what that indicates to me is maybe something had to change inside of me, perhaps on a subconscious level, before I could experience that change out there in the physical environment. And that's the best um, explanation I can come up with so far for what happened. But it took a lot of work, and then it got easier and easier and easier. And then I developed, you know, I consolidated everything I learned about the process into a technique that's really easy to teach people. And when I teach people today in a classroom, probably by in under two hours or an hour and a half, they can do everything or most everything I can do, including standing across the room and moving the object, even under a glass container. So... It's very easy once they know the technique. You struggled for months to learn how to do this, and now you're able to teach other people it within a few hours. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> honestly, because in my process of learning how to do it, I think I grew as a person psychologically because there's a lesson there about grit, about trusting myself, about experimentation, about coming up against social beliefs or the majority belief about reality and all of that I had to struggle with along the way. So it was quite an emotional, psychological process for me. But then when I teach someone and they learn it in under two hours because they have the technique right there in front of them, 
so I think a lot of the students don't have to go through that process, and it just happens. And there have been some cases where it happens so easily for people that they don't believe it's real. <laughs> they can't believe that it could be that easy, and then they just stop practicing because they think it's something else altogether. It was just too easy. Well, there is uh, in parapsychology something that I call a beginner's luck effect, that very often people uh, who are kind of naive discover they can do something really like remote viewing, for example, the first time really well. Then it dawns on them what they've done, and, and the fears arise, and they have to go through a lengthy process to be able to repeat that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've experienced that with some of, the, some of my students, too, where they they succeed, and they believe that it's real, but then they stop. They just need to think about it for a while, and maybe they never try again, or they try it later on when they become more comfortable with the idea of it. What's interesting is in the classes, I can usually tell who's going to succeed right away and who's going to have a really hard time. And it's normally the smartest, or I I should say the most educated people, uh, maybe the people of a physics background and engineering background, or, you know, that kind of education, because while they're trying to get the object to move, they're analyzing the process. They're trying to figure out, well, how does this work? And they're thinking about quantum physics. They're thinking about entanglement. And they're doing all this thinking, which requires a certain state of mind, of consciousness, namely the, the beta level of brain waves. They're thinking that way, and they're struggling to have an effect. Meanwhile, the people who just come in thinking, maybe this will work, maybe not, or, or the believers... So we have that sheep-goat effect. They just take to it like water because they're, they're not trying to figure it out. They just want to do it and see it for themselves. And so there's not a lot of pressure there, not, not a lot of logical analysis either. Well, one of the points you make in, in your books is that this is not something that is done from the level of ego. Yeah, that's right. And it, a lot of that came through to me accidentally as I spent those many weeks trying to learn how to do it. Little things would happen along the way that gave me a clue to this. For example, I typically start a session looking at the object in a normal state of consciousness. Maybe I just got home from work or I've been watching a little bit of TV or something or doing something else in a very alert state. That after sitting there for a half an hour staring at a piece of tinfoil that's not moving, I would start the daydream and think about other things. Even though my eyes were still on the object, my mind was somewhere else. And at that point, when I'd start to enter a dreamy state, and sometimes I'd actually start to fall asleep the way we do in meditation sometimes, (laughs) falling asleep sitting up, that would happen, and that's when the object would start to move. And I realized, oh, when I'm drifting from a beta state down to an alpha state, and maybe, maybe a light theta state perhaps, that's when there seems to be a response from from the object in front of me. So I have to figure out a way, how can I produce that effect on purpose? How can I change from an alert state to a very relaxed, daydreamy state? Well, you have often suggested uh, in your in your books that it involves a kind of merger with the object itself, the, the realization that you're not actually separate from this piece of tinfoil. Yeah, I think it's a helpful... I'd call it an attitude adjustment, uh, especially when I'm teaching this in class. I usually start by telling them 
uh, or I'll ask them to pick up the object and first I have them hold it in their hands and toss it about and I tell them, feel how light that feels? It's almost weightless. So of course you can move it with your mind. No problem. And then I have them pay attention to the details to look at the colors that are reflected on it. Um, and this this also applies to paper. It's not just tinfoil. You can do other objects. Just so we're clear for uh, the benefit of our viewers, you're really making a little pinwheel out of paper or tinfoil suspended on a needle and, and getting it to spin around and ideally in a situation where it's cl- covered by a, a glass jar so, so that uh, you can't blow on it. That's right. And when I was doing this by myself, I would I got to a point where I was I was so doubtful of myself, I would tape the bottom edge of the glass container to make sure that no air was coming in or out of it. After a while, after I had a, was enough success, I stopped doing that because if I accidentally bunked the table, I'd have to go through the process of untaping, putting this stuff, the object back on the needle, and then retaping. So after a while, I just stopped. But I had to go through that process to prove to myself that air was not involved. But yeah, so it's just a little object on a needle. At this point, some of our viewers are going to ask themselves, so what? So what's the value of being able to spin a, a, a pinwheel on a needle? How does that make your life any better? <laughs> That's a great question, and I hear that a lot. And I think it, it depends on where someone is coming from when they want to approach this. Uh, most people don't care. It's easier to just reach over with your hand and pick up a small object. Of course, there's really no practical value uh, on that level. But if you're trying to go on a personal journey to think about or inquire about the nature of reality, it's a beautiful experiment that you can do on your own at home. Uh, People who study quantum physics know about the observer effect. For example, the double slit experiment, that the way photons behave depends on whether or not they're being measured by someone's consciousness. And this is basically the same thing, I believe. I mean, everything I say is hypothetical, uh, but my experience seems to go in that direction, that this is an, a way to explore the effect of how we pay attention to things in life. Now, it's not like if you pay attention to something, you're suddenly going to uh, manifest a miracle or become a millionaire overnight. It's not like that. It's more about the very subtle, small ways that we pay attention that there's something, again, beyond the physical. We look at a piece of tinfoil a certain way, and somehow the environment responds and causes movement, which to me is just a way to ask more questions, to explore more deeply what's going on. And of course, for many of us who grew up in a traditional religious framework, we've heard about the saints, the messiahs, the mystics, the people who could produce miracles, even today or in recent history, there are people like faith healers who can do incredible things. And I think that there's a connection between this very small example of moving a small object to producing a very large effect, for example, in healing. There's, there's something there between them. And learning how to do telekinesis at home is a really easy, fast, and acceptable way to dip your toe in that water of exploration. So it's just an entry point like a gateway drug to sigh, really. I think the only thing that's just as easy to enter into um, on that level is remote viewing. As you said, a first-timer can have an excellent result practicing their clairvoyance using the remote viewing protocol, but they see that somehow they're able to perceive something at a distance. Here, they're able to move an object at a distance. And, you know, I think this is all 
all of this has something in common, the, the idea that everything in life is information. That's all it is. I used to talk about this in terms of energy, but I don't even do that anymore because I think if we dig down into energy, it's not even a thing on that level. It's just information. And information can have a receptive quality where it, it responds to other information in the environment, or it can have a projective quality that it affects other bits of information, I guess. So depending on how you use the information of your mind, you can cause something to move. And movement is just information change for an object where you can learn or perceive something at a distance and you're just receiving information into your information, if that makes sense. Uh, let's dig a little deeper because I, I think this is very interesting. Since you've been spending years now teaching people this skill, you've also written a book called uh, The Renegade Mystic, I believe is 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 the title and the subtitle really caught my attention about how to find spiritual freedom through consciousness exploration. Yeah, a lot of this book came out of what happened to me years ago when I left uh, the spiritual groups that I'd been part of because I had some negative experiences there surrounding issues of power and control. I mean, we're still in a period of the Me Too movement in terms of power and control notably in, in the arena of sexual behavior, but also this is just what people do in school and families and corporations. You know, people in power just crave more power. And so I was in that situation. I left and I really wanted to free myself. And the thing with a lot of religious teaching or spiritual development is it comes from the viewpoint of that you have to give your authority to to someone else or receive their blessing in order to do something or their permission. And I can see that in some cases, receiving guidance from a teacher is a good thing. Um, for example, you're a teacher with your program. I teach people. But we don't ask for people to give their personal authority to us. And I thought, I want to continue my spiritual journey but retain my power and look and investigate my own way. So that's when I went on to look, teach myself how to have an out-of-body experience, then do telekinesis, psychokinesis, and remote viewing, just as a way to look deeper and deeper into my own being and, and find my own answers. And it also keeps me safe from falling into even my own dogma. It's impossible to become dogmatic with these things because if I'm honest with myself, I really don't know how any of this stuff works. And it's important for me to have a high level of integrity with this work. So when I teach people, um, I tell them, here's the, here's the technique. Apply it any way you want to or even change it. It's yours. I don't have a trademark on any of it. It's just people doing what people do. Consciousness is everywhere. And find your own answers with it. So this way, when I give someone a technique... Um, they empower themselves, and then there's really not an extreme power differential in that case, and people can go off and do whatever they want with it. And a lot of people can do a lot of good with it, because another practical application, for example, of psychokinesis is becoming a, an energy healer, or a faith healer, or, you know, like a Reiki healer. Same principle, but your intention, attention, for the betterment of another person. And so that's a beautiful way to apply a lot of the principles we learn about during um, parapsychological experiments. Also, what you're getting at is 
a, a, a couple of things. One is finding your own personal sovereignty that you can explore spirituality without turning over your uh, will and, and your sovereignty over yourself and your decisions to an outside organization or, or a guru. But then the question ultimately is now that you're finding this spiritual freedom and consciousness exploration is, is a great term because it lets you really be the inheritor of every spiritual tradition to the extent that you find them useful and, and important. They all have something to offer. But ultimately, the question, I think, is what are you going to do with that spiritual freedom? Absolutely. That is the big question because for me, instead of instead of coming closer to any answers, <laughs> anything satisfying, like, oh, now I've figured it out. Now I know the meaning of life. Now I know what really is going to happen to me when I die, even though I've had out-of-body experiences. I don't know. All of this leads to more and more questions. And instead of, instead of that cave that I've entered narrowing to a fixed point, it's opening wider and wider and wider. Of course, it seems natural because the universe is so vast. And so I think through exploration, we, we realize that, that there's a part of us that's more than human reaching out to the nature of the universe, which is incomprehensible. And I think the human tendency, um, which is natural because we seek security, we seek limits, we need a framework to exist in while we have this physical body, is to know where we are in the universe, to know our place in life, to know that there's a beginning, a middle, and the end, and that gives us a certain level of security. And I think that that's what humans do with religion. I'm not knocking it. It's useful. We need it to work with each other, to live with each other. But it locks it down. You know, it gives us a, a conclusion about what it is to be alive, what it is to exist. But the conclusion might be premature. <laughs> it might be leaving a lot of leaving out a lot of truth or what's really going on. So for me, my spiritual journey, I know, I already know, I will not have anything figured out by the time I die. But the richness and meaning it adds to my life, I think, is so much more than if someone just walked up to me with a book and said, memorize the laws in the book and you'll be okay. That is no longer satisfying to me. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for people to operate that way, but for myself, at my stage in life, it doesn't serve my personal quest anymore. You know, I set the books aside, just go into direct experience, and I have to be okay with the fact that I'm not going to come to any firm conclusion about anything. But what I find out about, uh, what I find out along the way is going to be amazing. It's already been amazing. And then, I think more than anything, the richness that I receive from my own journey is when I share it with someone else, maybe in a classroom setting or at a meditation retreat, and they have an experience for themselves. So I don't have to convince anyone. They just have their own experience. And the light turns on in their eye and they go, oh, wow. You know, that oh, wow factor. And I know that something happened to them that's going to be part of their experience going on. And I don't need anything in return. But just to know that that little flame has been passed on and and it's enriched someone's life in some ways. I think that is the most practical and valuable aspect of this whole journey, is just sharing with other people. If I recall correctly, you're in graduate school now, aren't you? <laughs> I am. It seems that I've spent all my adult life trying to figure out what to do when I grow up. <laughs> 
and really all the, the consciousness exercises that I teach, there's sort of a, it's not even a job, it's just a labor of love, but I had to figure out a career. And for a while I was a massage therapist, and then I entered real estate, all under the idea that I could serve other people, but none of it really quite fit. Um, I've seen counselors and therapists as part of my own journey, and I received a lot of value from it. And there are a lot of people close to me who are therapists, and I respect them so much. And I also see how much, because of modern research, counseling has a lot to offer people, sometimes a lot more than spiritual traditions do in terms of how to think and reflect and make changes in life. Um, that I decided, I think I want to become a counselor. <laughs> so I've just started the program in my, in my second semester of uh, becoming a counselor. But I think that way I'm going to have a much broader and research-based set of tools to work with people. Um, because as a, you know, I've been a meditation instructor for a long time, but the level of training I've received and what I've learned along the way, I think doesn't really cover a lot of the bases that modern counseling can, largely because of the research that's been done and the consolidation of um, experience from other counselors over the past many decades. Well, it strikes me that the counseling and therapy profession, ideally, uh, and they don't always achieve that ideal, but ideally what you want is for your clients or students to become the best versions of themselves. Yeah, to to find meaning in their life, to to be who they want to become, to find a way there, um, and to do it autonomously. So this isn't about advice giving, because giving someone advice sort of disempowers them. It's more about reflecting back to them, forming a, a healthy relationship with them, because that's how humans really grow, is in relationship. By knowing that you're being watched and respected and held by someone else's attention, helps another person grow in the direction that they want to grow. And I think maybe something I can offer future clients is something that I can offer people now. Imagine a client going to a therapist and telling them, I had this experience the other day where I flew out of my body and I think I'm going crazy, you know? And so having that blend of a, um, experience in parapsychology or in psi or in the paranormal, whatever name you want to give it, and counseling, I can talk to someone and say, you're not losing your mind. This is something that actually happens. And let's talk about how it's changed you or how it's informed you about life. And same thing, there are a lot of people who talk to me or send me an email and say, well, I know you do this telekinesis thing, and I've got to tell you, every time I get really upset, the light bulb in my kitchen explodes. Or my car won't start. Or my cell phone dies suddenly. And I tell people, and they think I'm crazy. My friends think I'm losing my mind. I can't say, actually, you might not be losing your mind. There's something to this. It's been studied. It's been recorded. It's, there's lots of evidence about PK through emotional explosion. So, Because um, I, I think a lot of people have personal experiences that they can't talk to about. And a lot of it, they frame it, they might frame it spiritually. And because of that, it can also be framed in the realm of consciousness exploration or parapsychology. Combining your work in training telekinesis with your work as a counselor, that the ultimate message is about manifestation. If they can manifest a pinwheel spinning uh, uh, across the room inside of a sealed jar, 
they can also manifest uh, becoming the best version of themselves, which is obviously going to be different for each and every person. I know, uh, for example, Sean, uh, when I wrote the book, The PK Man, and I, I worked with Ted Owens, who was a master of producing large-scale psychokinetic effects, and I took his training program. This is a guy who could raise thunderstorms and lightning bolts and uh, tornadoes and, and the like. And uh, he asked me as the training began, what, what would you like to do with this? And I thought about it. I realized I didn't want to do any of the stuff that he was doing. I was interested in studying it all right. Uh, I, and I said, what I really want to do to, with this ability is to be a communicator. That was my destiny. And, and it manifested within a few months. I had a, uh, television program <laughs> that's been, you know, eventually went nationwide and, and, and it's still what I'm doing. And, it's it's about being able to have, uh, in effect, the universe cooperate with you when you're pursuing your passion. Absolutely. That's so well put. I think there's something that your experience and my experience, experience learning PK and someone else's experience doing something their life has in common. And let me put it in these terms, that when someone does PK or telekinesis, they're doing something that most people think is impossible or that most people fear or that most people say, don't spend your time on that. That's nuts. And that's a psychological barrier that people have to encounter when they want to start a new career or maybe they want to get married. Maybe they want to get divorced. Maybe they want to have children or maybe they want to move to another country or open a new business. All of these things are risky. There's a huge amount of emotional and psychological uh, pushback to a person who wants to take that step. So when someone practices psychokinesis or some other psychic ability, they're pushing up against that in some way. And a lot of it's inside themselves and they have to learn how to transcend that psychological barrier and make it to the other side. So there's a level of, of grit there. I mean, for example, in your case, you met with um, the PK man and months later you had your show. But I know that for you, there's a story of grit there because you had to fight to get your advanced degree. You know, when you were fighting for your dissertation, they challenged you. And even after you got it, there were people who were working against you because they didn't agree with what you were trying to do. And so we're talking about years of study, years of talking to people, years of pushing against people um, who were fighting against you. So... It might seem like, oh, it just happened, like there was a manifestation, but that manifestation is based in a lot of hard work and a lot of time, right? But, but it all comes down to if you have a passion, you will make it to the end, right? In your case, you uh, had to face a lot of doubts about psychokinesis. I recall one story where uh, even after having successfully done it for, for quite a while, you began to wonder if it was really uh, real. Yeah. <laughs> The, maybe the, the worst or the best example of that was recent. Um, it was either last year or the year before. I went to Portland to spend some time with some scientists who wanted to do some research in it. And I was just there to be part of a team. They could do it too. They could do the same kind of telekinesis that I can do. 
the one way they measured what was going on was with a thermometer, and they saw we we all saw that when I approached the container, put my hands on it, that the heat rose inside the container right away, and suddenly all the work I put into just melted in my mind. I thought, oh my gosh, I've been fooling myself all these years. I've written these books. I've taught these classes. And the whole time it's been heat. And I crumbled right away, which shows, you know, that there's a lot of psychological frailty or strength involved in this process. That's how fragile the human ego is, that I just crumbled right away. Um, and unfortunately, it wasn't until I left on the flight home that I realized, wait a minute, it, it's okay that heat happened because we're talking about the movement of air molecules, which is coincident with heat production. And there's, there's a theory or a hypothesis that what's happening with this kind of PK is actually I'm not causing the tinfoil to move directly, but I'm causing the air molecules to move around it. So heat's not a problem if that's the case. But then I also started to remember why heat isn't a problem because with the breathing technique that I teach people, you can actually change the direction of the movement by modulating your in-breath and your out-breath because breathing affects awareness and the flow of energy in the body. At least that's what some traditions say. So heat, that counteracts the heat issue because if I can control the motion or the speed of the object by how I'm using my mind and body, that means I have some level of control over it. And also sometimes the object will come to a stop and I'm sitting six feet away from it and I just go a little deeper into my mind and bring it out of a state of stillness into a state of movement again. You know, there are about three or four other reasons that I remembered that it wasn't, that heat wasn't an issue, that there really was PK happening. Another interesting one is I could set up three containers in front of each other, in front of me, meaning that the furthest object shouldn't move first because the heat coming off my body would move the one closest to me. But often it's the one furthest away that responded first and the one closest to me wouldn't move. Or some variation of that combination. And some people might think about auras. Maybe my energetic field was moving out to that distance and that has something to do with it. It's just a, it's just another idea, but I don't know for sure. But basically I crumbled <laughs> so quickly when in the face of uh, scientific observation and my all my doubts came back and later on I rebuilt my confidence and so now I tell people look if you're going to do this work you should commit to spending a hundred hours doing this kind of telekinesis because by then you'll have so many strange experiences you'll be sure that there is some sort of psychokinetic effect happening and it's not the random movement of air or the production of heat inside the container Another example, and this one's kind of fun, is that the object, when I work with the same piece of tinfoil or paper for a couple of weeks straight, it seems we start to develop a relationship. Maybe it's an energetic or a consciousness relationship or some type of pairing or entanglement. Because what will happen once in a while is I'll walk into the room and the object will be on a table across the room. And just as I cross the threshold, I look at the object and it'll turn to face me <laughs> like it's alive. <laughs> so there's, there's something about relationship or over distance in time, which again is an indicator that this isn't a mechanical effect produced by heat or friction or static or whatever else. So that people won't have these experiences unless they dedicate hours and hours and hours to practicing it. Cause a lot of these things happen accidentally as most 
psychic events too. They're unpredicted. They just happen spontaneously, and then we can't track them. Isn't isn't that a thing in parapsychology that side the, the fastest way to kill the psychic effect is to, to put try it in the and laboratory? control it? I <laughs> have learned over the years it's much better just to allow things to happen and appreciate them when they do and enjoy the spontaneity of it rather than to have it under control. But I have to say, in your books, you've done a masterful job of analyzing all of the emotional nuances that rise up into consciousness when you do try to control it. And I, I and I see the merit of uh, at least once in a while trying to control it. That's really how the whole field is going to e evolve. I, I can well imagine that a hundred years from now, Sean, that the sort of thing that, that you're doing and, and you're sort of uh, one of the very few people in the world today teaching uh, psychokinesis or telekinesis, eventually it may become widespread. Oh, yeah. I think in that way, it's it's become my spiritual path. So taking it even further than just a consciousness exploration, it is a matter of spiritual development because of that very human emotional aspect to it that I learn about myself. I learn about my ego and my defense mechanisms and all this stuff is part of the process. I think when we hear stories or anecdotes about psychic experience, it, it's very mechanical, like, oh, a person did this, they made this happen, or they were able to perceive that. But a lot of the books or a lot of the reports don't dive into the human element, probably because it's very private. It's so personal and intimate. But for some reason, I just, I like to share that part of myself. Um, I guess I'm more open than I'm aware of that it's, there is a very human component, which I think adds to the richness of life instead of making it like some sort of magic trick or an illusion, because those are pretty much empty of real meaning, I think, although they're highly entertaining and have some of the same lessons, but there's something else with real psychic experience. Well, Sean McNamara, this has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, I think you're doing wonderful work. I encourage our viewers to look into it further if they want to cultivate psychokinesis. You're definitely one of the go-to people. Uh, thank you so much for being with me. Oh, thank you. I had so much fun talking to you. And for those of you who have been watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.